You are listening to the Think Brick Australia podcast. Think Brick Australia represents the clay, brick and paver manufacturers of Australia. Brick by Brick, our podcast will discuss technical information and architectural case studies with special guests. I'm your host, Elizabeth McIntyre, the CEO of Think Brick Australia. Well, listeners, today, another treat for me. I'm sitting here with one of my favourite people down in a very cold Melbourne. And it shouldn't be cold because it's only autumn, not winter. But I'd love to welcome to our studios, Rachel Nolan from Kennedy Nolan Architects. And Rachel, we've known each other a long time now. Not as long as I would have liked because I think, as you know, I was too petrified to come and talk to you for the first five years. I'm very scary, Elizabeth. (laughs) (laughs) It's working. But if we could just go back before we talk about architecture and obviously bricks, what sort of was your childhood like growing up? I grew up in Albury on the Murray River. Not a rural childhood, quite a suburban childhood, country Catholic kid, but pretty lucky. I look back and think how I got to grow up up there was pretty free, amazingly free now when I look back, free of devices and free of all the connections that certainly my kids are connected to now. Good friendships, had really good teaching and a big, big extended family. And while you were at school, did any of your architectural talents become identified? I think probably just in creative play when I was a kid, that's when it started. I mean, you know, we were a generation which had... Lego, Lego to play with and I had friends who my best friend was the youngest of eight and so had built a pretty extraordinary Lego collection through her family and it was back when Lego was that beautiful universal no gendered colours good you know great block colours and the, the most superb gift to have as a kid for long afternoons just pottering around and I spent a lot of time making cubby houses when I was a kid another good friend of mine I directed her dad to put up a wall at a tiny cubby house and a drop drop-sided table. We were laughing about that recently, making willow tree houses around the river. Spent a lot of time subfloor in my other friend's house lighting fires, which is probably lucky we didn't burn anything down. Combustibility testing. Burning straws and plastic. <laughs> <laughs> you know, drawing a lot of things on walls. So it, it was lucky and it was free. And I think, you know, you don't want to be a certain age where you just like all oh, tech's awful, but it was pretty free, simple, imagination times and mm. I and you know that kind of excitement I used to feel making things as a kid I often remember that as being kind of what the definition of being really happy is. And were your parents like creative people? Not necessarily but they were in, in a kind of indirect way they probably were. Mum was a teacher, dad uh, ran elders up there and was a weekend bookie as well but you know dad always potted around and made things and had kind of craft projects when we were young mum was really interested in fashion always had kind of different hair so they were they had their own creative kind of outlets if you like my youngest uncle who's not much older than me was a carpenter so you know I was like seeing things made but not directly there hadn't been anyone really go to university in my family but I was brought up as the eldest of three girls knowing that I would go to university and leave home when I was 17. Mm. So I was either going to Sydney Uni or kind of Melbourne Uni. And it was a combination of being interested in maths and science and I always did art. I could always I always enjoyed drawing from when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you obviously were doing better than stick figures. I was not a bad little drawer. Actually, Mum said a few years ago there was a teacher that came up to her many years later who kept drawings I'd done. Like I always enjoyed drawing. 
and was easy for me and it was yep. an expressive thing to do. So, you know, when you're in a place a long way away from thinking about what you want to do for a living, the idea that if you could draw and you were a competent maths person, it seemed like a, and you wanted to go to a university for whatever reason that was in my head, it was a nice mix of those things, and, I think. And, and both I, came naturally, it seems. Yeah, I was a bit naughty at uni, being particularly academic in the first few years, having kind of having all that freedom of leaving home, I guess, at 17 and where I met Patrick at Newman College. Like yes. we were country kids who went to live in a beautiful Walter Billy Griffin and Marion Marnie building. And that building, I think, had a huge impact on both of us in terms of architecture. When you're living in something that's by incredibly amazing architects at a certain time of your life being 17 and 18, like that was quite a profound influence on us mm. living at Newman College. Yeah, now I'm very keen to work out how I can get my children out of the house and have that experience when we're city people now, like how you can start to be an adult around that age, I think. why did you choose that university? Because you were saying it was either going to be... Oh, Sydney was six hours from... A lot of my family are in Sydney, my extended family, but Sydney was, you know, a good six hours from Albury and Melbourne was three and my dad came down here for wool sales and mum could come down when she had a day off. So it was just close. Okay. And ultimately, I think the college I was going to go to in Sydney was all girls and I was really ready to not be in an all-girls place around that age. And we, we went to Jesuits who were kind of pretty progressive part of, you know, having grown up a country Catholic. They were quite interesting as well. So Melbourne was easy. And it's amazing that little point in your life where you can make one decision A or B. That's what I mean. And it kind of, you know, the, the what is it, the passing doors or closing doors? Sliding doors. Yeah, sliding yeah. door yeah. moment, I think. You know, met Pat. That way, he grew up in Wedonga. I didn't really know him growing up. He was a, he was in a year below me, and then met him at Newman when he was actually doing arts. He came in doing arts. So, how can you just talk about that just a little bit? How did you come to meet? Was it during like a subject or uh, no? Because we lived together, so I was oh. in second year, and yep. then he came in as a first year, not doing architecture, but he was always interested in. He was doing fine arts. And so Pat's got a great background that way because he's really broad, having done that arts degree and interested in all sorts of things. And we became friends at college. And then he, I'm trying to think what year he then said, he went from an arts degree to an architecture degree. And then when I was working, we were living in student houses. We're always seeing each other that way. When I was working, I'd come back and always pop into his house after work when he was still doing his final year and, you know, drink lots of wine and smoke lots of cigarettes and talk about buildings. We talked about buildings all the time. And at a time when certain things weren't fashionable, we always liked the same things. And I think around that time it was, you know, 1970s residential housing, the work of merchant builders, early brick buildings, like that Australian modernism. We'd kind of grown up with some exposure to that in the country. Like I remember being a young person and visiting the first house that had split levels and just the like, just, I just thought it was so terrific, you know, to, to feel a, a more unusual spatial arrangement from a conventional suburban house, mm. what impact it had on me. And Pat had a cousin who actually went on to be our first client and we've done work for Fiona later that had grown up in a merchant builder's house. We used to talk about that type of Australian modernism. Yes. Which was so closely coupled with beautiful native gardens, had a real effect on us. And so, you know, basically we just love talking about the same things, which completely led to us wanting to start practice back in 99. Like quite simple things that we had moved us. It was quite, you know, those things were quite experiential for us or emotional for us. And it seems like because 
at this point, am I understanding it correctly, that it's not like you've done 20 group projects together and you've figured out that you can work together. It's more that you've got these common interests and what's really moving you both is the same thing. Well, friends. Yes. You know, and ultimately everyone's, the definition of being friends is you have all sorts of things in common, primarily having fun. And I guess that's a lot to do with how we want to run our practice. It's not necessarily that we all like the same architecture. We actually, in fact, try not to talk about architecture all the time because we find, actually find it a bit boring to do that. Well, where do you get new inspiration to do mm. things? We don't get our inspiration from looking at architecture all the time. We get it, our inspiration from working with people who are really interested in different things, I think. And, and, you know, I mean, ultimately that friendship led to wanting to run a practice together. And actually a gazillion years ago when we were working at different places, we decided to do the Andrew Boyd-Charlton pool competition in Sydney, yes. which I think must have been about 21 years ago. I mean, great sight. Yes. We were on drawing boards in my teeny tiny little dining room, drawing all night, just thinking we had a crack at winning. That was hilarious, like completely naive, with another girlfriend who was actually up in Sydney at the time, Kirsten Stanisich. Oh, yes. Who's got Richard Stanisich. Yeah, yeah. And we were just like fully thought that, you know, it was a possibility, like adorable when you look back at it. But we sat and did our, you know, work together and talked about design ideas. And, you know, I guess that was the early recognition that we could do that together. And so it's been 20 years, just over 20 years now you've been. I think it's 20, yeah, yeah, I think it was last year 20. I mean, you know, we could have had a yeah. great 20th, couldn't we? But we could have. All no, got a bit gonna, smashed. In we terms can now have a really good 21st. <laughs> yeah, I actually, it must. It might be 22. I think last year such a weird blip because Pat and I both turned 50 that year and then we also had 20 years in practice. And we kind of thought neither of us did big 50ths or our 50th and we were going to have a big party. So, you know. We probably should have a think about that, shouldn't we? Have <laughs> celebrate it. Maybe. It's a long time. It is, yeah. And what do you think's been the secret? What is our secret? We've, I mean, we've, we've got a whole lot of other friends in common who aren't architects as well. Okay. The secret is I think we both remain interested in a whole lot of other things in the world, quite different too. I think ultimately like we had a lot of fun as well like that's a really good thing and we need to remind ourselves as pressures mount and we get older to continue to do that like that's why we're doing this otherwise mm -hmm. both of us really use holidays to regenerate us holidays are really important more typically for pat he likes to go to a place that he loves in france as a real regular return and i'm the opposite of that but those times doing that are really restorative to us in practice, mm. to read broadly and enjoy other arts. He's, he takes enormous amount of pleasure out of music. And all of those things, all of those other interests outside of art. We've never been architects who want to go and listen to lectures about architects, architecture all the time or do trips where we just look for, you know, look at architecture all the yeah. time. Both of us have in common that we really need a break from that to be able to recharge on another level to keep a level of creativity and try new things. I would like to think we didn't have our wheel in the group and we're just honing a craft. Yep. I guess we are on some levels, but in terms of how things look or what we're testing, oh, that would be really disappointing to think that's what we would continue to do. Like a, that would bore me half to death and it would him too. Yeah. And yeah. do your stars complement each other? Like uh, are you better at some things and he's better at others? Oh, or? I think that's inevitable. Yes. Um, okay. And I guess we try not talk about them more that the practice has got to a profile or a personality beyond the two of us now like mm. there's over 20 of so us many. so it's like how do you how do all of those other people come into play and we're really careful not to is to always say we 
yeah, that the mm. practices work. Like increasingly as we're getting older, that's really important. Like no one makes a building by themselves. It's, it, the buildings are complicated. The process is complicated. It's long. A lot of the time it's hard. There's so many hands in our office that actually deliver that piece at the end that to the outside eye looks easy or cool or beautiful or whatever, you know, whatever you want to call from one image, it's mm. complex. So, you know, it really is increasingly a group effort mm. to deliver projects at scale in our mm. practice. But ultimately, when we talk about, you know, ultimately I guess between him and I, we're, make, we're making certain design decisions together that we would really want the other ones complete, full support in it. I mean, I often... You know, when I'm coming up with something I want to talk about it with him, he will always value add to that idea. Right. And I'd like to think he would think the same. <laughs> the same. You know, we'll I would you know, like, you know, comes on. Yeah. <laughs> you completely cr- crush and trash me. <laughs> <laughs> Just going back a little bit between that time where before you started Kennedy Nolan, mm. what happened after uni and before that time? I had worked for a number of women architects, interestingly, because it didn't seem like there were many practices around run by women. So when I had to go out and do a prac year, I worked for two women in Fitzroy and actually I met another woman, Victoria Hamer, when I was there and I worked with another woman I became had a long friendship with. And we were working in Fitzroy, you know, drawing boards, smoking at our desks, blow heaters on our feet. Got a call one day, work had burnt to the ground in Fitzroy. Andrew Maynard's got a building on that site now. Completely kind of eccentric, shambolic, interesting setup. And then I'd met Victoria Hamer. She'd been work. She, when she was younger, was trained through, trained or worked for Graham Gunn. And there were a lot of her friends had also been kind of Graham Gunn babies, if you like. So then I had worked for her before I finished uni, and then I came out of uni and worked for Victoria. And then I then I went to small practice residential work. Mm-hmm. She was really sharp on admin and like and because we it was a small practice, we're exposed to every part of the running of it. So we really it's quite a, a incredible thing when you look back at it being young, not, you know, from fee letters right through to the end. So it teaches you really how to make small mm-hmm. practice. I went and worked for a good friend of hers for a while, Joe Toscano, who was also Pure Simon Swanee, that whole cohort who'd worked for Graham. And then Pat worked for Victoria. It was kind of at a time there wasn't a lot of work. Pat came out of uni and worked for Victoria. And while he he was working for Victoria and I was working for Joe, there was an opportunity for us because we had all these friends who weren't architects because we'd been to college. They were starting to look at, I need someone to do my house. You know, so we could we could get going on not much work at all. And we did it. Like, you know, went to office works and put a fax machine in a trolley, kind of laughed, thought, what are we doing? And I was living in a warehouse in Fitzroy, which we weren't, I had before I had kids, and the whole top floor was free. So we had space, we had projects that were about to happen, and it was really just like I came home one day and said, Pat, I resign, you're resigning tomorrow. And it was, and, and we just took it from there. Like it, it was all kind of hilariously low-tech, <laughs> drawing boards. You know, there was it didn't require much, but we just had a couple of jobs and we ended up employing Someone very quickly, Emma Mitchell, who also worked at Victoria's office, who was also an artist. And so we worked out very quickly bringing other people into the practice was really exciting for us, having other personalities. She was a gorgeous woman who went on to, she's got a practice now down the coast, does really beautiful work. And how bringing in interesting other people was just great, like to make a good workplace. And, And we were based in Fitzroy, had other friends around. We often had parties messy parties it was fun like 
to be in practice was fun for us when we were young. We made the most of it. And then when did you move from sort of more the residential? What would be one of your first key projects? That The first key project was a house for Pat's cousin Fiona and her partner who had actually been at university with my husband and it was an alteration and addition and was pretty, it was around that stage where really the conventional response was a big room, open plan room with north facing light on the back. That was what was around and we were really not into that. It was a house on a corner site and we were going back to really liking the idea of rooms and a kind of arts and crafts expression, how new architecture could talk to original fabric. And that house, which was all hand documented, God, thinking back and it was probably hundred and something thousand, it was like nothing. But it was a re- actually a really interesting little building. We would still go back to and say that was incredibly formative. Pat had done a little ensuite Renault for his cousin earlier. She was really, she's gorgeous too. She's really interested in colour, beautiful aesthetic, really interested in making a beautiful home. And so we've gone on to do other work with them, but that was that first project mm-hmm. and we won a really big institute award for it. So it was it was an incredible launch for us to think that what we were doing was different and we were interested in something different we felt like we had something to say in that space it wasn't like why would we just do the same thing yeah and it was Um, being validated yeah it was it was being recognized it was new Mm -hmm. and I would say that feeling of looking at how you do things differently we would always want to keep that energy in practice looking at things very carefully about and intentionally and having a design position not just doing the same stuff and that doesn't mean just what it looks like. That's like how it works functionally, mm. I think, and how you move around it and what the organisation of it is in that residential spot. So, you know, we've gone on to do a whole lot of other work now. The idea of the house or domestic habitation, whether it's an apartment or social housing, that is very important to us, how you live. And we all, mm. everyone comes with that life experience, yeah? So mm. if we teach students and they're all a bit like, you have to look at architecture, it's no, you you sleep somewhere, you live somewhere, like everyone's got that. It's personal. You can mm. use that experience. You don't have to know how to design a, you know, a theatre or what, you go out and research that. Houses, we all have quite a visceral response to that. So that very long answer to your question, that little project was probably very important in terms of kicking off our reputation, but our reputation as a practice that understood domesticity, I think. Mm. But the thing is we all think we live the same. I've, I think a lot of us think, or at least I do, is that we think we would operate the same in a, in a set house, yeah. whereas everyone actually operates very, very differently. Yeah. I think it's often the gift of travel. You just go and see, oh, we thought this was how it would be done and it's yeah. totally different. Over the 20 years, is there was there some real gear change moments in projects for the practice? Oh, there's been an enormous amount of grinding gear, gear changes <laughs> over the years. Yeah, I, I think so. There was a period there where the idea of doing larger projects for developers was very compelling, but we really had to, you know, you've got to cut your teeth on some new stuff and there were some pretty serious lessons to be learnt there in terms of design control and value management and what your name got stuck on. We're very careful about that now. We're really happy to do work with developers but it's got to be really the right project you've said that to me before yeah so you see you know we can still see buildings that are sold where you can you they pop up and they've got your name on it and you and it's not what you would have wanted that's a very that's a trick for young players we learned that trick but it also (laughs) we cut our teeth 
in how you document and put those projects together. So then we had runs on the board and then we had the luxury of choice, choosing mm. better ones. So all the time, all the time in practice 20 years later, we're doing new projects and you've got to do a new project sometime. But we always feel as architects we're quite trained to be able to adapt and adjust and learn all about it. And interestingly, like years ago we did work at Melbourne Central and we'd never done shopping centres and that's exactly why they brought us in because they said they wanted someone who hadn't. Yes. And it's so refreshing when you get a client who's prepared to say we don't want what we've always had and, of course, architects have got the tools to be able to adapt to that or you ask your peers if they've worked in that area, if there's kind of structural things you need to understand. But mm. architects are great problem solvers or looking at things freshly. So, you know, we're... we're grinding those gears all the time we're mm. delivering a documentations that's been delivered for a 16-story melbourne hotel yeah we've never done that before what a kind of brilliant opportunity yeah. to do something that's mean a, a big building size in melbourne and big responsibility and we don't you know it's really important for us when we're making work in our own town or anywhere that it's good work like you know mm. I, I think you don't get a demographic professionally as we're Good architects, you get more from them because they really care. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they'll go the distance. Yes, yes. Because they actually really care about their product. Mm. Yeah, I think you've probably discovered that over the years talking mm. and knowing lots of architects. There's a lot of love. It's not always kind of the fiscal reality of that extra time is often people will lose to get a better oh, product, yeah, because they care. It's I think it's quite a weird thing that sets us apart from other yes, professions. It's a passion profession, yeah. I think, you know. And you can and there is a lot of choice that goes into what projects and and yeah. I think from what I've observed, there's a lot of choice architects make about how things are going to work, whether they want to admit it or not. Yeah. There's always that choice. They're gonna be there for a long time. And I guess mm. in practice we we feel like we've been so busy for so long Nothing ever finishes altogether. Like you're always chasing or problem solving on something while something terrific finishes. There's not a lot of time to stop and go, look what we made because all these projects are at different points. But I guess almost getting to that 20-year point when we're asked to do an exhibition of our work or a talk, they give you the opportunity to stop and you go, buddy hell, like this, <laughs> we've made heaps of stuff and you look at it and, it and it's all mostly stuff we're pretty proud of. That's an incredible thing in a profession, isn't mm. it? Like to turn around and say, look at what we've done. So it's more and more important for us to make sure that, that what we make in the future is, you know, it's got good credentials. It's as sustainable as we can make it. It's build small, build well, you yeah. know, it ages well. Like what's our responsibility of that going forward? After 20 years of making stuff, you know, how much time have we got left? And so let's be... Let's, if we can afford to be as strategic as possible about what those projects are, I mean, that would be a great position to be in. Yeah. You know, like if you can choose your work, what Is, would it be? Have you seen design change over this this time? Over 20 years, of yeah. course. I mean, any time you, you sit on, on any jury, you see that. Yeah. What have been your main observations of that? When we started, we were completely interested, like I said, in that kind of Australian modernism, which was really expressive brick. And that was mm -hmm. kind of coming out of a 90s time where you did not see a brick. Everyone was rendering their old brick <laughs> houses, you know, like everyone was like putting the marzipan uh, paste over yes. them to hide any sign of it mm. and we always loved that so we were using recycled brick and actually struck mortar and paint 
early because we were sitting in the Fitzroy warehouse we were working in was a triple brick building that was all flush mortar and painted white. It was the most beautiful texture to work in. So we're like, let's do that with our buildings, yeah? (laughs) Or we'd, you know, been so influenced by Boyd's, Jimmy Watson's. Mm. And so bricks were pretty on the down low, you know that. And then there's just been the most extraordinary kind of reappreciation of them again for obvious reasons. You know, there's always fashion in colour. The Mm. moment, you know, we've been sitting on juries the last few years and you're all being a on the jury panel for the Best House in New Zealand and incredible work when sometimes all of the projects will be on the table and you don't see any colour. Everything's beautiful, stone and black steel and heaps of timber and superb. Where's colour? And, and you know, sometimes you miss it. It's like, well, what should we be thinking of doing differently? All this is terrific, but what's, what's something we should be exploring? So, mm. yeah, I mean... We've been around long enough that you get a bit scared, like, oh, is that in fashion? I don't want to use it. And then you have to go, you know, give yourself a bit of a slap and say, if you love it, use it. Don't ever, Try and not be affected by is it fashionable. You know, it's got to be there for a long time. It's not clothes or your hair or a painting, you know, like you know, oh, different, I shouldn't say a painting. but And also when you're working on it, it doesn't kind of come out at that point. It takes a long time to make a building. It might be two, mm. three, four years before it's seen, the idea you're having. It's a long trip. Yes, well, I might just ask you that because I'm always just gobsmacked when I find out how long some projects have taken. Yeah. You know, and it started as a competition yeah. 10 years ago. Do you have any of those that you want to share? I mean, there have certainly been houses that have started a long time ago. Actually, it's mainly pretty in our housing portion yes. of the work beautiful one finished down on the coast recently and you kind of go back and think oh what project number was that and you're kind of shocked how long they've been sitting in there it might be eight years but sometimes people start things happen goes on hold for a while might sit in planning you know like there are things that I feel like we're never that focused on them because there's always so many other projects too so they can just go quiet for a while and they come back yeah other gorgeous clients we had a project we called oak tree house they came to us a long time ago. When we finished that project, they realised, kind of forgot there was a, a giant kind of pause point in the middle while they had to stop and, you know, financially work stuff out or sell something, you know, selling a golf course or something like that. <laughs> and it was, you know, it, it just takes a long time. But yeah. I, I guess there's always the distraction of other ones, so we're not so focused on that. No, but I remember like just from my own experience, I remember thinking, right, well, we've bought the house, we'll get mm. the plans through council in three months and yeah. we'll start building, we'll be done in two years. No one would say no to you on that front, would they? You just go down to council and say, come on. <laughs> Well, I was this in for a woman. rude awakening. I think along the along the um, journey, the architect kept saying it's it's not going to go as quickly as you think. No, Elizabeth. it's a, it's after a long time in practice. Yeah. It's really important with people to ask people what their expectations are around time and money yes. at the at the front end, <laughs> because they can be quite broad. Mm. Yeah, it's a big range. We've spoken a little bit about obviously domesticity and houses, but you've also done an incredible amount of institutional work mm. as well and you've used brick in that yeah what and there's some signature I think aspects of your design which I can often now nail as mm. a Kennedy Nolan mm. what it's do you try obvi- to- there's an obvious one isn't there yeah <laughs> <laughs> what do you do what how do you approach those type of projects look I mean brick for obvious reasons we can get a kind of great result and we know it's such a resilient material in terms of I mean look we're always trying to to get something as 
human scale, craft scale into those bigger projects to make that humanness, if mm-hmm. you like. I mean, some of the housing projects we've done uh, for a developer, one in Collingwood, we were looking at how the suburb was used by the confectioner and the, you know, 80 years before that where there were a whole series of white brick buildings. So there was a kind of reference to heritage mm. and we got as much brick on that building at a kind of podium level as we could. And, you know, those buildings, they get a lot of value management and you just know with bricks if they're there, then they're always going to look substantial, like someone's kind of cared about the building to put that extra detail in them. Like it's a, it's a really useful tool for architects mm-hmm. to see a portion of it up close where people walk or what you, what you might touch to see that level of craft come out of a building of that scale. Mm. So, you know, they're a great trusty tool to use in those. In, and people understand them. Mm. I think increasingly as materials became kind of techie, you know, you could go, you could go to certain parts or new parts of Melbourne where buildings came down to the ground. And if people put their hand on the material and you said, "What is that?" they didn't have an answer. Yep. They didn't know what it was called. Mm. With carpentry and with bricks, there's a type of understanding I think that allows people to be quite feel familiar or nostalgic or comfortable with mm. it. They understand it, mm. and there's a level that, of that mostly people have put it together. Mm. I mean, it's different to if you're doing on panels high in the sky but where you want to come down close and touch it there's something really nice about that and reassuring i think i think there's a real fondness for the material that way it's understood mm, i agree and i always think it just looks so different up close as it does you know from two meters away and it changes completely from 10 meters away it's also that thing about it's not perfect no you make something perfect like completely precise and perfect in an external environment it can only be that for a short while it's just not how things age and and i mean in practice we really want to think that it's okay to age like it's inevitable and it's okay and what's the thing what are the materials that age the best or what might you look forward to things aging trying to apply it to my own aging process (laughs) you know we used to talk about when people get all uptight about marble staining it's like go to the vic markets and look at those counters in that beautiful you know in the cheese section Yes. And they're all worn and divoted and they're beautiful, you know. So how do we do that with materials? And that that sense that something's not completely perfect, uh, there's a real comfort in that. Well, I think we can all identify with it. Oh, I can identify with it. <laughs> <laughs> One of the things that I've asked you to do over the years, because I'm completely in love with your Instagram, both your personal and your professional one, but I remember a couple of years ago I asked you to come and explain actually to our boards just how much technology had in it, had had that impact mm. on really how projects were unveiled. Mm. Can you talk to that a little bit? So then how do you think it's changed from what you do now? I think it's really important to have a quite a consistent, authentic voice that doesn't look like someone's running your your online personality so Mm. we've always done that in-house because it's actually really nice for people to get a sense of who we we are as individuals too like Mm. there's a tone i think that can be conveyed that way i agree with you. who's working in our practice it's really important who's doing what who are our builders Mm. who are the people we work with and what are projects coming up or who's our community we use it as a platform in terms of a whole lot of architects trying to achieve certain social outcomes Mm. as well there's lots of really positive things. I mean, there's a whole lot of rubbish things about it too. you just got to learn how to not 
go down that path. I think it's interesting and I think it's changing all the time. All the time. Yeah. I think it's and, I, and it probably needs some rules around it as a consequence. You know, like these things can go down certain avenues and, you know, we're just trying to work out in practice, like how do we, does it go from being a toy you muck around with and all, you know, I started doing it and then it was was like I was playing with it and was like, hang on, this thing's getting bigger. It has to come in and have its own identity as a practice. And then, you know, this, it starts to firm itself up. Yep. But I think you're right. Just as, just as soon as we all think we know where things are going, it's it changes again. So I, I reckon, I don't know whether because I'm getting older, but the in, an interesting thing about it now is how do you comb back through a million emails or a diary or something written on a wall to know when things happened? A year goes really fast. And there's something about the balance of a single image and just a line of writing that even in practice, like we were submitting for awards, uh, Victorian Institute Awards, is even to go back through that feed to go, oh, that happened in March 2021, just to see where things are relative to each other. Looking at an office diary, it's just words. But that I think architects really respond to that image. I love, I call it all well, of the feed. It's how we actually plan. Yeah. Just about because when you can see things visually, how they're going to look, and then you can go back and see. I like it because it's sequential and it's often relative to each other. Like what I'm increasingly forgetting where things sit to other events. So there is a type of kind of Hansel and Gretel trail you can leave behind and go back very quickly and know I will, you know, that might trigger you to say, oh, that's kind of where we were at at that point. Yeah. Which is quite personal, the trigger, but that visual image could do that. Rachel, you've been involved in all aspects of our <laughs> awards, from entering to winning to also being a part of the jury. And what's your perception of the Think Brick Awards and how they've impacted yourselves? We're involved with lots of awards, different types of awards. Mm. And we've always been really impressed by the Think Brick Awards in terms of how completely kind of professional and organised it is as well, even in terms of coming up, meeting other really interesting people on jury as well, and you guys knowing to get a real variety of that. In our experience when Pat and I were on jury, like it was a very enjoyable, civilised process that we did. And it is interesting being on a jury when you've submitted you know, it's mm. all, it always is for any number of awards, just to know how kind of fast that first edit process can be and what you've got to get on the table. Not all projects are known. These days with social media, some of those projects are quite known. Mm. And also in these awards, you don't get to necessarily go to that place or haven't no. visited it before. So the power of what an architect chooses to submit, to put forward, I mean, I think, you know, you've got to have the right judges to obviously cut through any of the kind of stuff that can be hiding in a photo to understand, to look for the right things or go to plans. Mm. But, look, we've always been really impressed by Think Brick's professionalism at really elevating those products as well and to really have to, I think it's had an enormous effect on when people are looking at projects about how they innovate those products, how they use mm. them in a new way. It's interesting over time we can almost put down you know, the trends in Brick and, and yep. put it to the awards year where yep. something won, like after Mel and Fooling did the Hello House with the Corbling yep. of the Bricks, like everything then came with Corbling, same with hit and miss screens and yep. things like that. So for us 
we can actually trace trace it all and then trace what's that meant from an engineering perspective yeah because the next people that come to us for help are the engineers yes and then what isn't covered in the standard and yeah. everyone just wants to say you know well I just want that look or I want to take that wall or, yeah so we you know for us as an industry it's it's fascinating to look back at where it's all sort of come from yeah and then looking at where it's going you know isn't it funny I think probably one of the funny stories from that was the idea that there was some things kicking around with recycled bricks so you know where something like painted or recycled sits in terms of a industry award that yes. was early days that was a tricky territory yes and then at the other end of that we were seeing brick suppliers looking at making bricks that looked recycled yeah, they do <laughs> yeah know. which you know obviously has its application in terms of certain fit outs was not in, in kind of projects that we were working on but it, it was interesting to see the the long effect of that tick over into well, a was product. It, do you know what? It was quite frustrating for me because architects were onto something mm. and I, I think mm. the manufacturers took so long to get onto it, Yeah, you know. Yeah. And the other thing I've seen really increase a lot is just the width of bricks. Yeah. And I do remember Neil called me one day and he said, you have to get these bricks from like they were Peterson mm. bricks you have to get them in, you have to sort this out, you know, if only things are that easy. <laughs> <laughs> I love how much faith Neil doesn't need to understand the complexities. <laughs> he just knew you'd get it done. But, and again, that has taken some time. But yeah. I think one young architect based here in Melbourne, Adam Kane, he ended up just putting pavers on top of each other. Yeah. And so, you know, I, I, I sort of think looking back, just the ability for the industry to be as nimble yeah. as it should be or could be. Yeah. Yeah, that that the architects were always onto these things. Yeah, I mean, I think that's the other incredible thing about a brick. It's a known and understood quantity that's been around for a long time that seems to have unlimited permutations of what you can do with it. Like and you and as soon as you get a cohort of architects who are trying to think creatively about that little singular constraint of what a brick is, it's amazing how much you can flesh out of that like it's a, it's astonishing really in terms of if you're talking about texture or hit and miss or even just the craft of the the brickies too mm. i mean or then what what it does in terms of it being a more fashionable product now is how much you look at heritage detail where you look at it and go you know it, who could have afforded to do that or the the skills that were around then like a really renewed appreciation of old building stock as well so it's an interesting it's a really interesting one, I think. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, architects are a really good cohort to think of creative ways to solve things. Again, I mean, I always think that about lots of problems that architects are quite good to kind of bring in to but think about things But it seems to me, freshly. though, that architects do their best when there are constraints, you know, whether they be like constraints with the material or with the budget yeah. or what I and, and what I try to explain to a lot of people is, the modular brick is part of that constraint. Yes. And that's a challenge. Yeah. Uh, look, I, I love constraints <laughs> and that's when I actually first started really enjoying Instagram is like if you've only got that and that, what's the most you can get from those, combining a little bit of word and image? And, and that kind of challenge is a really nice one that it doesn't look too hard or you don't push it too hard or milk it too hard. I think, you know, certainly when you're teaching students, I think you're going to get, you're going to understand who's who 
if you give them a very small palette and tight constraints to see, you can kind of see whose skills are what and what you need to work on in that. And, you know, there's nothing, it's like the fear of the white page. You could do anything. As soon as you bring that down, people can start moving. It's yeah? true. You can start to make some moves, yep. test things, gain more confidence, build from there. Mm. But I think, you know, no, there are no limits. Off you go. A lot of people don't know which way to move. So I think I think that's a human thing, maybe not just an architect thing. No, I agree. Yeah. But I, but I think in terms of a profession, constraints are embraced. I think so. I think so. I yeah. think so. Well, because architecture is practical, it also has to work on lots of levels. You know, mm. it's can't let water in. You know, it's, there's a whole lot of hard stuff it has to do. It's doing a lot of jobs. That constraint mm. thing, I always just always made me think of my youngest kid went to this beautiful early learning centre run by Melbourne Uni, and my other kids had gone to other places, and you know, they'd come home with reams of drawings and stuff and paintings. It was all like rubbish you just put in the bin I'm like, oh, that's lovely they'd find it in the bin like why is this in the bin i'm like oh i don't know who put that there <laughs> but when they went to elc they really understood limiting a palette even from little kids yeah it was like limit it to that talk about a topic and then you got this extraordinary kind of beauty from a classic kids on a certain topic with just a few things at their disposal mm-hmm. it's how you can make that that kind of poetry from a few things and I, I that's always appealed to me mm. since I was a kid and it was really clear in you know that third kid it's the only art we ever kept <laughs> <laughs> and gorgeous and you look back at it it was so perfect because they understood constraints and these were the materials they had yeah to work and with. like that can mm. be applied to adults and exactly what we're talking about mm. yeah I just thought just a few final thoughts from you about what you see in young architects today? Where do you see, do you see differences? I think young architects are pretty engaged with the world mm. and they've got some big challenges to face, like our future's a curly one, it's a hard one. But I think it's an interesting time. I think there's a really interesting time as Australians to remember whose land we're on, mm-hmm. to talk about whose country we're on. It's really difficult to work out what that means in architecture yet, like what architecture can you make from acknowledging the traditional owners and whose land, you know, we build our build modern buildings on. And I think that will be developed from here. So I think young people engaging with our Australia's past is really important. Where that goes to in architecture, I want to be part of and watching and I'm not sure what that means yet, but mm. it, we're, we're all keen and, and it's got our support around that. I think young people, I think there's an amazing thing with students these days, which we didn't have when we were students, which is the ability to watch practice through these new mediums like social media, to see practices as real people, to see what work they're making, not what they're finished. Incredible thing to do. You can never see that before. But that's the thing, isn't it, with social media because you're getting those insights in other ways. Yeah, and then Mm. also as a young person you also know that what you're seeing is not always real, that it's edited, how you keep that very sensible thinking cap on at the same time. But I think there's an exposure there which is quite good, which I would have liked to have access to as a student. And I think it's also really important and, you know, we teach every now and then and certainly have continued involvement with Melbourne University, is saying to the students that they don't just look at architecture, like thinking that architecture is separate from just all buildings, is that whenever you're in an environment and you're using it as a person, that's what it's all about. Architecture is people using things and being in things, being around things and in all sorts of environments. It's just to 
look at stuff and look at what works and what doesn't. It doesn't have to be architecture. It's just space. Mm. And increasingly, I, I would like to think students, if I could say anything to students coming through or when we do run those pro, those um, design studios, is to always think about landscape. Like this idea that inside separate to outside, that landscape's a separate component. Like in our practice, we've always had those things on their there are other tools. Yes. And they're often, landscape's often the thing that makes our buildings better. And it's almost, you know, these days it hurts us to photograph a project at the end. And we've got to do it because it's kind of got to get out there in the machine. But recently in practice, we've had a deep desire to want to go back to projects that are, you know, five to 10 years old when what we imagined they were going to do with the design of their landscape or our thoughts about it after we've worked on with often with Amanda Oliver in our practice and see what those buildings are then like that's mm. so but students do when they're in their built environment to notice what formally plants give the qualities that plants give in conjunction with architecture I mean, it's a bit of a long answer but it, it's very everything's improved by it I think so but I, I I think just noticing from my own daughter just we're teaching I think schools are teaching a lot more empathy you know, I don't think when we learnt when I was at school about Captain Cook arriving, we weren't made to put in the position of what that would have felt like. And that's what she came home and described to me. Yeah. Which, you know, that's a big shift. Hopefully. Yeah, essential shift. Mm. And, and it's time it caught up. Mm. And, you know, to think about what our country was and how you protect that too, you know, in mm. terms of land and birds and animals and what our future is. Like, you know, it's pretty... There's trouble coming. Mm. <laughs> We're now going to go into our rapid fire questions. All right. Ready? Ready. Reading the news. A newspaper or online? Oh, newspaper. Handwriting or typing? Handwriting. For sketching ideas and concepts, would you use a pen, pencil, or an e pen? Oh, I've got an e pen in my hand in your right hand now. now. I use all of those things, but increasingly trying to move to sketching on iPad. Do you like to read books or listen to audiobooks? I read books. What is important to you, style or substance? Ooh, substance, but it's got to be lovely too. Those two are friends, those two things, yeah. <laughs> Coffee or tea? Coffee. TV shows or movies? Both. <laughs> Antique or brand new or modern? Oh, everything. Like that's a hard one because that's mm, design. It is. Old and new, what beautiful things together. Yep. Call or text? Call. Travel back in time or into the future? Oh, I'm big into sci-fi, but I'm scared of a dystopian future. <laughs> I'll go back for a bit. You're going to go back for comfort? Where. I don't know where, yeah. yeah. 70s. Exterior or interior? Completely can't separate them from everything I've said before. Video games or board games? Oh, none. <laughs> Form or function? They're friends as well. They have to be. Complex or simple in relation to design? Oh, you're killing me with these because like, I actually don't find any of these opposites, which mm. is they have to exist together. When something's simple but has all those beautiful complex, that, that's, that should, that's the objective, isn't it? Isn't like it? taking complexity and making it look easy. And yeah. that's that's architecture. Yeah. Absolutely. Mm. That's a beautiful way to end. Mm. Thank you. Thanks, Elizabeth. That was easy. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, rate and review our podcast. We are always looking for ideas of what to talk about. If you have an idea of what you'd like to hear about, there's a link in our show notes to let us know.